Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thank You Enjoy, a podcast about Asian and Asian American culture and media made by a couple friends. My name is Casey. Last week's episode mainly covered the generational gap in the Filipino American communities when it comes to political views. This week, we are extending the political topic to talk about personal experiences as AAPIs currently or formerly working in politics full time. I'm really excited to have these two guests with me, Hunter Bloss and Tony Choi. Welcome, welcome. Hey. Glad to be on. Glad to be on too. Uh, So before we dive into the meat and potatoes of this episode, usually Ethan, Allison, and I like to ask each other and our guests what's been on our minds lately when it comes to AAPI-related news, uh, current events, topics, life events. Can be something super goofy, something serious, just something that's current in your mind right now. So, Tony and Hunter, uh, anything along those lines that kind of has been like simmering in your minds lately? I've been, um, I mean, we are in the middle of a pandemic. So, I'm always thinking about the pandemic, but in particular, thinking about Guam right now, where I'm from. Um, I'm half tomorrow and Guam is currently, unfortunately, ground zero right now with COVID. Um, It is extremely bad there. Um, We're talking, you know, hospital beds out in like the parking lot is how bad it is right now. And I have family members who are are hospitalized. So that's something that I've been thinking about a lot, even though we're so close to E-Day. I'm, you know, thinking about Guam right now. And and, um, I think just the Pacific and like how they're dealing with COVID since it's so isolated there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Hope your family's doing okay now. I would love to hear more about your family background a little later in the episode for sure. Uh, Tony, what about you? What's been on your mind lately? So today, today on today on the day of recording, the uh, the Vanity Fair interview with the AOC came out and. What I, you know, like what I've been thinking about, I'm, I'm going to pull up the quote because it's like, it's, it's like been like with me all day long. Um, so in there, in the interview, she talks about growing up in, in the, you know, like immigrant underclass, um, 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 section of the West, very rich Westchester County, which we were just talking about. And, uh, she, you know, like she goes, you know, like she goes into like, why, you know, one of the reasons why she persistently calls for the abolition of ice, uh, and, you know, like, and I think one of the th- things that she says just really strikes me a lot. Um, I'll, read, I'll read you quote for a quote. The Democratic Party has been, and this dates back to the Obama administration, extremely weak on developing just immigration policy because we are scared of our own shadow. So I've been thinking about that a lot, Casey. Mm. Yeah, and I think that both of those things on your minds, I think, goes into right into my next question, which is, First, like as as AAPI people, like firstly, do you identify with that umbrella term? How does it tie into your family background or your own background? And later on, like how does that work into your experience as people who work in politics? Great, yeah, I think I do agree with the I I uh, identify with that umbrella. I'm I'm also half Filipino and that's Asian American, and I'm I'm half Chamorro and that's Pacific Islander and Indigenous. Um, I think there's a lot of tension within those two groups. Um, 
because Pacific Islanders as a minority within a minority uh, do not get a lot of, um, I guess, space. And there's obviously a lot of nuance within the community, you know, going from like East Asians to Southeast Asians and Filipinos are always, they feel so weird about how to identify within the community. Yeah. Um, but I think I really, I really do identify within that. And I think in the last uh, couple of months, I've been um, thinking uh, more deeply within the relationship between Filipinos and Chamorros. Um, I've been participating in this community group of Filipinos from Guam who call Guam home and, and work with Chamorro activists um, for independence. And I think I'm kind of still <laughs> in the beginning of that journey, but I think I finally feel very comfortable with the label. I think I didn't feel very comfortable with it for a long time. So I think that's where I'm at with it. Was there something that made you, like, what, what was there something specifically that made you uncomfortable with that label? Um, I think this goes into, like, the uh, divide within the community that made me feel uncomfortable with it. I, I grew up more in, in touch with my Pacific Islander side, mm. um, just by the nature of my family, I was closer with my Toronto side. Um, and with, and like to go into like the weeds of Guam, like Filipinos are very racialized on Guam and there's ethnic tension between the two groups. Um, so I think that that was a reason I definitely felt uncomfortable. And then also moving to the mainland, I just, I didn't identify with a lot of like traits that like mainstream Asian communities do too, because for the most part, there is, um, a monopoly, I think, of like East Asian people, um, you know, kind of being the face of the community. So I think that's for for a long time. I just like, I don't know how I feel about this. Um, but I think there is this movement to embrace um, like Filipinos as Asian Americans. Um, I think there is a lot of like tension of like maybe we're Pacific Islander and things like that. And I just think that it makes more sense for me personally but I do think a, a big part of it was definitely like this what is the face of Asian Americanness in the U.S. that is East Asian so yeah and super relevant too because October is Filipino American Heritage Month and our last two episodes Ethan and Allison talked to Filipino guests and they also were navigating this complex identity as well uh, Tony, how, how do you feel about the AAPI identity and how does it tie into your participation as someone in politics, whether it's for a job or volunteering? How, how does your background inform your experience as a political person? So, you know, like even, so a little backstory, I mean, I guess, you know, we'll probably go a little deeper as the hour, hour goes by. But, you know, like my backstory is that, you know, my family immigrated to Hawaii first, um, and then we lived there for about a year, and then to mainland. And then, you know, we ended up settling in the, on the East Coast. Um, and, and, you know, like in, in the East Coast, the, um, you know, like the, there isn't like a significant population of like, you know, like Pacific Islanders. So, you know, like, you know, in my politicization, uh, my politicization, I've always, you know, like, it, the term AAPI wasn't something that I started hearing until I started working more with like the West Coast people. 
because you know like on the east coast you know it's it's asian american um and like you know like aa something not it's not it's never like apa something um so you know that was something that i had to get used to um you know like be, you know being being in in the space and i you know i do think about you know i think about what it means to say you say asian american versus like aapi um, like, you know, like if there are no PIs in the space, like, you know, is there, you know, like, do I have the right to, you know, like use a label? And, you know, like, and even within the AA space, you know, like it's, it's, you know, like a lot of times it's like very much dominated by like East Asian folks. And like, you know, we're not even that good at like, you know, incorporating like Southeast Asians and like South Asians and, you know, like in, 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 like in our, in our like work, like, you know, like how, how are you just going to pull in more people into the, the umbrella that we're not really good at holding, right? Um, but you know, like I, I do, you know, like I do, you know, like I'm trying to be more cognizant of like what, you know, what it looks, you know, like what it looks like to really hold hold that AAPI umbrella. Like, you know, am I bringing people in? You know, like am I, am I being cognizant of like, you know, like, um, like, um, PI stories? Um, I mean, you know, like, cause East Coast, you know, like as like you know, like Asian American dominated it is, it's not devoid of like Pacific Islanders. There are like pockets of Hawaiian people who live in, you know, like in New York. And I've met like a Samoan student um, who was who was attending St. John's University while I was doing a workshop there. Um, there's like a significant Marshallese community that lives in Arkansas. You know, which is you know, which is also I guess still kind of East Coast-ish. Um, um, and you know, I feel like you know that's it's like a failure on like the East Coast, you know, like Asian American movement to not really you know like include them and you know like in the in the movement. I think you know we just have to start, come come to terms. But I do think that, you know, like California um, in particular is like, you know, it's like a, you know, like a vision for like where API organizing will be in the, in the East Coast in like, uh, in like 10, 20 years. So, you know, maybe, you know, like in, in like 10 to 20 years, you know, I get, you know, like the API community here in the East Coast will be better, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like will truly be API as opposed to just Asian American or like just Chinese American, Korean American, you know? Gotcha. Yeah, I feel like I, I I was born and raised in the West Coast, so I have no frame of reference of what the Asian experience or PI experience is on the East Coast. So that's really interesting to hear all that. I know that one of the UCs, I think, started Asian American studies as its own study, even as a university course. So I've been very lucky to be kind of surrounded by this discourse for a while, but like what is interesting to me, and it's a question that I will also throw out there, is did your identity as an AAPI person factor into why you all started getting into politics at all? Because personally, I just treated my Taiwanese Singaporean identity as just a cultural thing even going into college where I studied political science, I completely divorced my own ethnic racial identity from what I was studying. Maybe that was because I was studying international relations to begin, begin with and that was just me being like country relations and not really thinking about people or not really thinking about myself. Throughout my whole college career, I just went to one orientation for the Chinese Student Association, and then never went to another meeting. I went to more events to the Nisei Student Association just because I had friends in it, but I never thought about me as an AAPI person in politics until I started working on the presidential campaign we all started working on 
last year where we had intentional paid programming for African-American outreach and Latino Latinx outreach. And then I was like thinking like, oh, AAPI outreach is a thing. Okay, I guess I will start looking into that. And it started becoming this grassroots thing, at least uh, we started, I believe, as well as another colleague of ours, where even though we didn't have a paid program, we just did our own thing and devoted time outside of our real work and our actual position title jobs to do something that we really cared about. So I'm curious to hear from both of you how much your own AAPI identity influenced you to dip your toes into politics. Yeah, I think um, it has influenced my uh, interest in politics, but I think for me, I know, until I moved back to the West Coast, I, I went to school on the East Coast, which is an experience as a Pacific Islander. <laughs> and I'm considering going back to the East Coast very soon and like, I'm kind of just, hey. I'm kind of like accepting like, okay, it's time to go back to being like the only Pacific Islander in the room, you know, and like not seeing anyone on the train who looks like me, whereas I can go out in Oakland, California, and there's like a Filipino right there, and there's a Pacific Islander right there, you know, like that is something that I was missing so much in my undergrad. I didn't get to read um, Pacific Islander um, writers. I didn't get to read Filipino American authors until I moved back west and that was one of my regrets. I was like, why did I go to school in the East Coast? I could have had an Asian American studies program, you know? Um, I think it's always been on my forefront because my family is, you know, they're, they're the base of the Democratic Party. Like my auntie is a super delegate for Guam um, and used to be the chair. And we don't get to vote for president. So if I move back to Guam right now, I don't get to vote for president, but if I move back into the States, you know, I get to vote. And I think that was just always something in my mind the moment I started thinking more actively about just like civic engagement. Um, but to that point, I just never, I never thought I would see people like me when I would start working in politics. Um, and I think that's why it was like so great when I started, you know, working at Next Gen and like, there was like a crew of us who were like Filipinos. Like I never had Filipino coworkers <laughs> in, in undergrad at any of my internships or anything like that. Um, and I think uh, that was a breath of fresh air. And I did think more critically about my Filipino-ness in that space. And I think once again, that goes back to being in California, being on the West Coast, where I think in my opinion, Filipinos and Pacific Islanders are just more politically organized out here on the West Coast um, in a way that we're just not organized on the East Coast, in my opinion. I, I just think I have conversations about this with our former colleague, Nala, because she also uh, grew up on the East Coast. She did like high school on the East Coast and she was just like, there's something about East Coast Filipinos <laughs> in comparison to West Coast ones in this, in this organizing space, I think. And I don't know what it is. It's like, there's just more Filipinos have political power here on the West. You know, my assembly member in the California state legislature is Rob Bonta. <laughs> so, I like, love Rob Bonta. Never, oh my gosh. I've never had a, you know, moving to the States. I've never had a, you know, representative who is actually Filipino or Pacific Islander. So I think that is um, 
a really interesting East Coast versus West Coast thing that I've observed um, just about, yeah, political power and like, who do you see in the room? And I think it's a bit easier for us here. Well, it is very interesting because like, you know, the first um, a Filipina Amer American representative might be elected from Texas. Oh, what's her name? Yeah, Gina Ortiz-Jones. Oh. oh, yes, yes, I, I have read about her, yeah. Yeah, she's queer, she's Filipina, she's great. Um, yeah, no, it's it's great. I think, yeah, I, and third, I mean, there's a joke, like Filipinos are everywhere except for the moon. So like, I, I think <laughs> it's like, it's interesting to see where, um, yeah, I think there's just organizing spaces and like just more of a will. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I haven't found the answer as to why that is. No, that reminds me of a really great code switch episode coach switches and npr politics npr podcast excuse me where they talk about asian american political participation and the history of it and the biggest thing that happened in terms of organizing farmers was the delano grape strike which was led uh a lot by filipino farm workers and mm -hmm. that was really and not only that they joined with the Latino farm workers and it was like a multiracial coalition. And so like to your point, Hunter, Filipino Americans have organized for so long. And I think since the sixties, at least since that was the sixties, at least I think yeah. even as far back as the twenties, cause there's, um, there's a great book by Carlos Luisan, who is a labor worker and it was semi-autobiographical and he is the 30s he like organized with other like chicano organizers because most you know farm workers at that time were filipinos and mexicans and like i think yeah you're talking about like decades of labor organizing on the west coast and like not just california like we're talking as far back up as alaska and like seattle is also an epicenter of a lot of filipino labor organizing so i think that's where it is. I just answered my own question of why, why, is there no, why is there no political power? And I think, yeah, I think that is, just goes into labor migration of like a lot of people who moved to the East Coast or Filipino moved to be hospital workers and nurses and things like that. So I think that's maybe the disconnect is like there's just not as much history in the way that I think Filipinos have been on the West Coast uh, for decades at this point. Yeah, and I think the really good part of that episode and the point I think of it all is that oftentimes we think, or at least the greater public thinks that Asian Americans are apathetic when it comes to politics. And then, no, you learn about all these things that happened in the past where they spearheaded all these movements and you learn about it and it's really, really awesome. Uh, stuff the media just doesn't really shine a spotlight on it too often tony what about you what was your entrance into politics like as an aapi person and how much of that identity influenced you to enter that realm so i don't know i mean i feel like it's like a mix of things right because like you know we don't live like monolithic lives i was like you know like you know being being a korean american isn't my only identity mm -hmm. you know like i'm also gay also a DACA recipient so you know like so I think you know the biggest trigger for me to you know get myself into this field that I'm in right now is the fact that you know that I was you know like I was an undocumented you know like undocumented person um 
and part of my journey, you know, like took me to Kentucky where, you know, which is where I went to school. And, you know, being the only undocumented person there, you know, like I felt, you know, like I felt incredibly isolated. And I started sharing my story with people um, because my school had taken away my stipend. And I didn't know it back then, but that was, you know, like organizing, like, you know, like to get my stipend back. Um, a big trigger to push me to where, where I am today was attending this conference. You know, like I, I went to this um, conference that United We Dream, which is an organization of undocumented young people had in Memphis, Tennessee in 2011. And I remember being in that, you know, like uh, main room for, for the conference. And, you know, when I went in there, I was expecting to see, you know, like a lot more Asian, you know, like Asian faces. And I, I was expecting to see like, you know, because like, I heard that people from like all over were coming from, uh, you know, people from New York, people from LA. So I was super excited to see, you know, like uh, other Asian people. And, you know, like in the room of like 300, there were maybe like four of us. Um, and you know, like, I was like, "Wait, what's going on?" And um, and you know, like on the la on the last day, uh, one of the main organizers, um, you know, he was he was rolling out their you know like, big campaign plans for the upcoming year. He was like really getting into it, like he was getting the room really hyped up. You know, he was like, "So yeah, so this time it's gonna be like all immigrant led. You know, like, we you know we are going to make change happen. And you know, like we're not we're not even gonna do like English language press. We're gonna do uh, language uh, Spanish language press only." I was like, hold up, <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> I was like, you know, what about my community? Like, you know, aren't you uh, gonna do any gonna do anything for like, you know, like my folks who are like, you know, like waiting back in the East Coast and like, you know, like LA and like all these other places where there are undocumented people. What are you going to do for them? And that's when I really realized I'm like, you know, like if I don't ask for it, you know, like it's not gonna happen. Like, if I don't make change happen, it ain't happening. Um, so that's, you know, that's what's gotten me in, into the line of work that I've, you know, like I've been doing. I've also felt very, you know, much excluded from like Asian American spaces because a lot of times DC establishment, uh, which is, you know, like kind of in like the New York periphery is, you know, filled with, um, you know, don't take this the wrong way for, uh, for US Coast people, <laughs> but they're filled. So they all fill into like the same, uh, same like profile. They either did an internship with OCA or APEX, uh, which, you know, OCA used to stand for Organization of Chinese Americans, but now it's just like OCA, kind of like KFC, it doesn't stand for anything anymore. And uh, APEX, which is like Asian Pacific American Institute on Congressional Studies. Wow, I can't believe I can memorized all that acronym. Or they were like really tight-knit UC circles. Mm, yep, sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and they were all from like all these like, you know, like upper middle class families it's, it's very hard to like network myself into those places. So, you know, like I've, you know, I've never like felt like that close of a bond with, mm. you know, the Asian folks who were, you know, like who are in DC in like the political sectors, you know, like instead like I found more refuge in like, you know, the, the LGBT folks, um, the undocumented people. At a certain point in time, I'm like, am I really empowered as like an Asian American person or am I a young empowered Latinx man, right? <laughs> It's like, you know, like I keep on going to these, like, you know, like Latinx spaces and I'm like, yes, you know, like, si se puede, but you know, I'm like, <laughs> is this space really for me? So, you know, like, I've had that challenge of having to carve out my own spaces, you know, um, you know, incorporating all, you know, all these experiences that I bring with me. No, that's really interesting that you bring up the intersectional part of your identity, kind of that there are certain tiers in which we kind of prioritize our identities or feel more kinship towards them. Like for me, at least, I, as I described, I didn't super 
connect with my political side and my API-ness until quite late into college or even post-college with the campaign job. However, one of the first things that woke me up politically was this online website called Rookie Mag. And that website talked a lot about feminism and being a woman and all that kind of stuff. And also just was like very artsy and whatever. So that really appealed to me as a high schooler who tried to be really cool. So Tony, do you feel, we, we talked a little bit about with like Hunter, like coming to terms with the API part of ourselves. Do you feel more recently more connected this like in these days at least after our stunt on the campaign or is it still something that is not a hundred percent uh you're really comfortable or feel kinship towards i feel like it's something that i had to build towards Mm -hmm. um like you know like so after you know like you know, after college and like after like my first few years, you know, like I worked at a Korean American community organization and I got to meet like other, you know, Korean American undocumented young people, you know, like working with them, you know, get, you know, get, you know, it made me realize I'm like, you know, like if these, you know, if these people in DC aren't there for me, then I, you know, I can be there for people like me. And so that's how I started, you know, building my own community, you know, like I've, you know, I've built like, you know, great friendships with like, you know, you know, Asian American people. And um one of the things that you know that i'm really proud of having having done is um i quit my job in uh december of 2017 uh, right on the precipice of the uh you know of like you know there was a possibility that that dream act might pass and like you know like i was like okay we need to, you know i need to go down to dc and i need to you know like do lobbying full time um but you know no one you know no one was you know willing to give me money to do that no one was you know like asking us to go because they you know at that time that you know all they were asking for was like swing state you know like um immigrants to go and like you know like and be loud and like you know for us to do like you know like little events here and there you know that no one would pay attention to so my you know my friends and i we raised ten thousand dollars ourselves you know we had a you know we had a gofundme we, you know, we held an in-person fundraiser. Oh my gosh, can you believe? <laughs> what are those like? We raised ten thousand dollars so that you know we could bring like you know Asian American undocumented young people to DC to lobby legislators and whatnot. And you know, with that money, I was able to go down to DC like eight times that winter. Wow. Nobody gave me money to do anything, but you know, but because like the community was there, you know, we you know we tapped into like you know like the pastors. We tapped into. Um, like all these different networks, these different relationships that I've been, uh, I've been building and, you know, like people who really believed in the narrative of like, you know, Asian American young people, because that was like the big part of the work that I had done up to that point, you know, because I've done, you know, I've been able to do things like that. I, you know, I've been able to come, come to define the Asian American identity on my own terms, um, as opposed to like going through like the typical, like the UC, uh, you know, (laughs) so much shade Uh to the UC system. (laughs) I know, you can't you know, relate. I, I didn't go to school on the West Coast, as I complained about. So, <laughs> as the only UC representative here, I don't disagree with what you're saying, Tony. There's some truth to it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You kind of bring up a nice segue to what I want to talk about next, which is the power of the API voter, at least for this election and the past few years, and our thoughts on it. Hassan Minhaj did a great episode of the Asian American voter December of 2019, which, wow, almost a year ago, he was talking about it. 
And he brings up some really good points. The AAPIs are the fastest growing constituency group in the country right now. A lot of the blue wave was attributed to increase in voting by AAPI groups. Specifically, when you look at Orange County, it flipped entirely blue and you're able to pinpoint it was because of the AAPI voters down there. And he also gave, gave a really nice shout out to Senator Cory Booker's presidential campaign at the time as well, which Tony, I think you have more insight to as well about the sort of different outreach that was happening at the time but, but amongst the presidential campaigns. And we can talk about like what we thought worked, what we wish to see improved upon. I just wanna hear uh, you two, what our what your perspectives are on how we can activate AAPI voters. Hunter, what do you think? I feel like I have such a hard time thinking about this question um, because I'm like Tony, I'm not as engaged in like voting turnout for the AAPI community. Um, I think I get so focused on this like you know, flaw within um, the the U.S. colonies or territories, as they're called, where uh, or flaw or just by design, where my people are not able to vote. Like, right, people on Guam are not able to vote. I think that's just what I am thinking about most of the time, and I'm just like, this is, you know, ridiculous. Um, but I do wonder, like, like yeah, I feel like the party is not interested in like, uh, it, it's it's happening now, but like speaking to my own community, like, what is the party going to do about, you know, talking to people who are Filipino on, like, you know, the H-2B visas, like, these work visas, that's something that really resonates with the Filipino community, and um, at least speaking to the Pacific Island community, I think, you know, I talked about this early on the campaign, late in the campaign, when I was put on the spot about, (laughs) (laughs) um, being a Pacific Islander. Um, For Pacific Island people, climate change is something that is not existential to us. It's, you have people in the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia who they're six feet from sinking at this point. Like this is not, you know, I mean, Casey and I, we live in California, so we've been living through the climate crisis, but um, for other people in the Pacific, like, you know, these are our homes. These are our our like homeland and we're going to be the most impacted you know the quickest we can't live there you know you're starting to see climate refugees so I think for Pacific Islanders like I'm thinking about like climate change I think everyone's thinking about climate change obviously but I think that is a an issue that I think the party could be really could really win a lot of Pacific Island Islander voters with but at the same time, I think this goes into this like weird topic of like disaggregating data. Like, I don't know what Pacific Islander turnout is like, which is why I think I'm like, I don't know how to answer this question because are we even like thought about? I don't think we are. <laughs> like there's probably totally. not enough of us um, to think about us, you know? So I think, um, you know, it's like a, I guess a two prong question of like, you know, should we push this out to voters, but also are they even voting? How do we get that data? Like, I think there's just a huge gap, at least speaking to the Pacific Islander community. Um, 
I don't think we're not active, but once again, I, I don't think people are courting our vote. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's just uh, that's just the reality. And I don't think there's enough of us to create a block for us to be like, oh, we really need to win this vote. You know, like, I think that's just the unfortunate reality of, of uh, being a minority within a minority. You know, I do have to say, though, you know, like, they do call, like, Las Vegas, like, what, like, the eighth island? Yeah, <laughs> they do. And, you know, I think the thing is, is, like, the thing about Hawaii, it's particularly Native Hawaiians, is more Natives are leaving Hawaii because they can't afford to live there. Where are they going? <laughs> they're going to Nevada, they're going oh. to California, they're going to... Oh, I see. It's, you know, they're being displaced. It's so incredibly expensive to live there. And... Yeah, you know, this is also segueing into a weird thing that's not really about voter participation, but this is particularly about Hawaii. Um, something that's so interesting to me about Hawaii, I don't know the person who is likely to take Tulsi Gabbard's seat. I forgot his name. <laughs> I don't have it on me right now. We can look that up. Um, but he will be the first Native Hawaiian to represent Hawaii. I like looked this up because I was super curious there's not been a native Hawaiian person representing Hawaii. Like, I think not even on the governor level, uh, definitely not in the congressional I level. Um, uh, Senator Paka was um, uh, native Hawaiian. Oh, was he? Okay. Well, like, it's just like, yeah. it's super interesting. That's wild, though. It's interesting. <laughs> um, you know, I think that goes into this, like, that is also another segue into, like, a, the different tension between Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Hawaii is a perfect place to talk about, mm. like, who has political power in Hawaii. It's not Natives. <laughs> Thankfully, on Guam, that's not true. Like, I could, for my community, like, my community, we are representing, you know, our people, but I think that's, like, an interesting... Guam is, like, you know, also, it reads, like, gender parity and, like, legislature. Yeah, and, like, <laughs> so Guam is, is like, like a, a bit of a paradise. You know, we have our first, she's the first uh, Indigenous, you know, Pacific Islander governor we have. And, you know, that's because we're a matriarchal society, so we finally reached it, and she's great. I've met her a couple times. I actually just saw her this past summer when I was on Guam. What? Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, Governor Lilian Guerrero, she's great, and yeah, there's like a lot of women within represented within the legislature. A lot of them are tomorrow women. Um, it's oh, just different, that. you know. <laughs> it's just different, and I think the big difference is that there there is an Asian community, obviously, within the East Asian community. And mm -hmm. There's Filipinos are the second biggest population, um, but I think there's just not as much of a monopoly because of the history of like labor within Hawaii is different. You know, they had you had um, East Asian people who did labor there for a long time when it was still a territory. So I think it's a challenge when <laughs> Native Hawaiians are not able to, are not um, in power on their own land. And I think that's something that is uh, an internal commu community debate that I think is ongoing, at least. I, I didn't know that fact about the the guy who is running to take Tulsi's seat. That is, wow, very surprising, but at the same time, not super shocking to me. Yeah, like both of the Hawaii senators, one is, you know, like a white guy, and, you know, like, I love Maisie Hirono, but, you know, she's yeah. not Native. Like, right, right. Like she has roots, but 
you know <laughs> it's not the same definitely yeah. not the same tony what are your thoughts on the quote unquote aapi vote and how the democrats or the republicans or anyone can harness it and what are things that we can improve upon when we talk to these voters or just people in general when we talk to the everyday api person about politics so oh my gosh i can go on for like an hour and a half on this but uh one thing you know i guess you know um that really popped up into my mind is that you know we have to really stop like you know like caucuses um especially for presidential elections um i was one of the first staffers from uh, headquarters to land in iowa and when i was in iowa you know like our communications director gave us a training saying that iowans love their caucus but when you talk to iowans of color no they don't they haven't you know like ever voted in like a presidential primary or a caucus because you know it's a very restrictive process that you know that is not language accessible that it, you know that that's you know just not feasible for them you know, like in fact, because they've, they've been able to have um, uh, satellite caucuses for the first time this year, the Burmese committee actually was able to turn out for the first time ever. But, you know, why, you know, why weren't we able to reach these Burmese people, you know, like who would have been uh, a voting bloc um, in Iowa for, a, you know, like for a long time, right? Like, we, we really have to, you know, like, think what is the most democratic solution? You know, what is the way to lower the barriers to vote? You know, and especially when I went, when I was in Vegas, um, you know, in the caucuses, like, you know, like, yeah, like, you know, like, there were like few Latinx people and like white people, but like, I didn't get still has like a significant API population. And I wasn't able to see them turn out because they don't turn show, show up to caucuses. And I think, you know, one, one thing that we definitely have to do is we also have to stop treating like, you know, Asian Americans as afterthoughts. I was lucky enough to um, uh, meet the, uh, the, the acting chair of the, uh, the, uh, the API caucus of the Iowa Democratic Party um, for, uh, for, you know, like to do an event in uh, Cedar Rapids. And, you know, like, I was so happy about it because, like, you know, we were the first campaign to do, do so and we eventually won her endorsement of, of the campaign. We did, you know, we did that this like really cute um, uh, uh, pizza place called Fong's, which is like a Chi uh, Chinese themed um uh, uh pizza place that's like owned by like Burmese immigrants and you know like, I was so happy about it that I tweeted out like you know like oh my gosh like you know like we had the first you know like a you know like presidential campaign event for you know Asian Americans in Iowa and then like minutes later Trump's uh director of like API engagement tweeted back at me and said no you weren't we had this event in Dubuque last week so you know like my you know like my big takeaway from that is you know, like if you're not talking to these people, you don't get to pick who, you know, who, who is a person talking to these people. They had like a hotel room full, you know, like filled with like all these like, like Chinese and Vietnamese American people um, in, in a, you know, like in Dubuque. I'm like, wow, like, you know, like they're, you know, they're, they're able to do that. Like, because like all these, you know, like candidates weren't reaching out to these people. So that, that's one of the big, uh, big takeaways. I have several more points on my uh, imaginary PowerPoint here, but I'm going to just top two points. I feel like, you know, Asian Americans have reached like, you know, like a lot of the peaks, you know, we had, we had two Asian American candidates and one Pacific Islander, um, a presidential candidate running in the cycle, which is, you know, like, which is something that I never dreamed of happening in like my lifetime. Um, and, you know, like in two of the ca campaign managers were, you know, were Asian American, Roger Lau, who ran the Warren campaign, and mm -hmm. Pai Shakir, who ran the um, uh, Bernie campaign. But, you know, like still like, you know, like, way that the, you know, the, the Democratic Party talks about us, I think is, you know, like a, like a big afterthought. 
I was on a call with uh, with with the uh, with the Democratic Party, and the CEO of the Democratic Party is actually also Asian American, and I had the opportunity to ask her, you know, like so, you know, like how number one, like, you know, like, how are you engaging, you know, like our, you know, like our communities, those of us who are not able to vote? Because there is a significant population, you know, like part of us who, who aren't able to vote for president, um, whether, you know, whether it's because like, you know, they are colonial subjects, like, like the folks in the Pacifics, right? Or like they are documented or green card holders, or, you know, like, yeah, people who haven't adjusted their statuses yet. And the answer I got was, you know, like, oh, we have a very good immigration policy. I mean, that can't be it. Like, you know, like it's like, are you, know, are you recruiting us to, you know, are you recruiting us to be like phone bankers? Are you, you know, like setting up programs in like Kakao Talk, Line, and WeChat? Mm-hmm. You know, so that all, you know, like, you know, people, regardless of their status, can be like a messenger on, onto our own communities. You know, like Biden campaign did really good things as, you know, as of late. They ran a, um, a, you know, like a full Vietnamese language editorial in the largest um, Vietnamese papers in like uh, Southern California and Texas. Um, and, you know, and they're, and DCCC is like running like really great attack ads on like in, in Southern California where like, you know, like they're recruiting Asian w- Republican women to run against Latinos. Wow. Yeah, uh, that's that's what's happening, and you know, like, in fact, that's what's actually happening all over. Like the Republican Party is like, you know, like um, recruiting like Asian candidates in like these fringe races, like in in like Orange County, and like in in like Rhode Island to make sure that you know like they don't look like the racist party. Which Money they in the are. water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, if you see like Orange County, especially that's like that's like the microcosm of that. Oh yeah. There's like a Korean woman, right? A conservative. There are two Korean women who are running, uh, running right now. Um, one is Young. Kim. Yes. Okay. Um, you know, and, and she's running for like the Fullerton area. Yeah. Gil, against, C- uh, Gil Cisneros. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know, like, and she's like, you know, like she's running as like a moderate, and then there's also um, um oh, what's her name? Uh, Michelle Park Steele, hmm. who is running against Harley Ruda. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, I didn't That's know that either. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Michelle Parkville was the one with the fake ballot boxes. Oh my gosh, no way. Mm-hmm. Wow. And if you if you zoom down even locally, like you know, like in the assembly, they're running Ling Ling Chang against like a Lat- uh, Latina person. Ooh, yikes. Yeah. I can't imagine very nice thing. Like, I don't know. I'm I'm I, I will look into it later, but I can't imagine that it's a very civil race right now when you start to pit i mean it's not it's not pitting minorities against each other like from zooming oh, out really totally i mean it is it is <laughs> yeah That's yeah yes it is <laughs> it, yeah it's just it's it's a yucky feeling uh for sure but i do want to amplify what you're saying tony about th- ways we can improve the biden campaign i do want to say has done some cool things that I personally have seen. I have done phone banking with the Chinese Americans for Biden a couple times, and they do have full-on scripts that are written out in Chinese. And a lot of the volunteers I see are older Chinese Americans and when I first entered a Zoom meeting with them, they were all talking in Mandarin and I have the level 
of like a six-year-old, I think, of understanding Mandarin. <laughs> so I was just like, oh, I don't know what you're saying. But it's really cool that you're all organizing yourselves and you have all these tools that you can use. So when you make those phone calls to Chinese people in Pennsylvania, you're able to talk to them in a language that they feel fully comfortable talking in. So I do want to shout out some really great things that are happening and are starting to happen with language access in particular. I think we're kind of wrapping up on this hour here. So I would like to ask from each of you, like, what is one thing that you would like to leave our listeners with who are, I would assume, majority Asian American or Pacific Islander, uh, but maybe they're not so interested or involved in politics as we are? What is like one thing you tell them? So one thing that I, you know, I definitely want to leave people with is that, you know, even if you can't vote, you can still do a lot. You know, like I've recently gotten to call, you know, like um, consider like what I am. Like I am a DACA recipient and like, you know, even though I've lived like two thirds of my life here, I don't have the right to vote. Um, and that's, you know, like it's, it's, it's apparently like a relatively newer thing. Apparently like up, up until like the 1800s, like non-citizens were still allowed to vote. So I, you know, I, I call myself disenfranchised and, you know, there's still a lot you can do even, you know, even if you can't vote or, you know, even if you're in like an area where, you know, where your vote won't likely determine like the status of like presidential election. I mean, you know, you could still vote for like down ballot progressive people um, and, and, and support like progressive candidates. You know, you could also do phone banking, you know, again, and like practice, you know, like practice your language skills like Casey is. And like also support like, you know, like Asian American candidate, candidate uh, great Asian American candidates uh, who are, you know, who are in the cycle, like Gina Ortiz Jones in Texas and uh, Andy Kim in, in, in New Jersey. You know, there's so, you know, there's so much you can do, you know, that is beyond voting. And I want, you know, I want people to think also creatively about what their impact could be after they leave the ballot box. Because, the, you know, like the children in the cages won't free themselves. Like you still have to push the Biden administration to, to, to free them. So, you know, the work doesn't stop after election day. That's so one last message I want to leave them with. I am snapping silently at your message. <laughs> Hunter, any thoughts? Yeah, I think this has been like a, a theme through this conversation. Um, I feel like we collectively didn't necessarily see ourselves in the, the political spaces that we've been operating in. And I think my call to action for people is like, okay, great, you don't see yourself there, like insert yourself there, like take up space then. Um, if you don't do it, <laughs> then we're never going to be represented, I think. Um, and I know that's a big ask, but um, our communities are on the line at this point. Like, this is this is real stuff that affects us. So I think that's my call to action is take space because they're definitely not giving it to us. Yeah, that's the perfect message to leave our listeners with. Take space. Advocate not only for yourself, but your communities and for those who often can't fight for themselves, those who are left on the margins. And it doesn't stop with election day. We need to keep the momentum going with this fight and all our fights far beyond election day. So thank you so much to Hunter and Tony for joining me today for this conversation. And make sure you tune in next week for our episode on Crazy Rich Asians. 
Hit us with a follow on Spotify, on Instagram, and Twitter for the latest news. This episode of Thank You Enjoy was produced and edited by me, Casey Lee. Logo designed by Chris Kim. You can find him on Instagram at Chuffamation. And intro music by Metal Lettuce. And outro music by Ethan Lee. You can find them both on SoundCloud at Metal Lettuce or at Ligato.